is for Chelsea Manning, this is for Edward Snowden, this is for all the whistleblowers who will never know, and this is for Anonymous, this is for a vast. The following lyrics are going to be particularly high. <laughs> How long before the storm and all of it? Then I'm a lyrics before I'm recorded. Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Thanks for joining us. It's been really great getting all the feedback from some of you, and we want more of that feedback. So we're now up to episode 12, and so we want to know from you, what do you think? What should we change? What should we not change? What can we do better? Please let us know. The easiest way to reach us is through the TechDirt contact page, or just by commenting on the TechDirt stories where we post these podcasts and let us know what you think. Because if you don't tell us your thoughts, we'll never really know. And that's because we're not the NSA or the CIA, and we can't spy on you like those agencies have been doing. And yes, that was a really awkward transition. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, the nature of the surveillance state has been a key topic that we've covered on TechDirt for many years, long before Ed Snowden came on the scene. However, even following the space closely for years before his revelations, we were still shocked at the level of deceit and trickery employed by the intelligence community to not just spy on people, both American and foreign, with little true oversight, but to then lie about it, actively seeking to mislead the public and Congress. For years, Senator Ron Wyden warned Americans about the secret law in which the NSA interpreted the Patriot Act to mean something entirely different than a plain English reading of the statute would lead you to believe. Now we know at least some of what he meant uh, with Snowden's revelations of how the FISA court approved the bulk collection of basically every phone record in the U.S. on the theory that it was a business record that might somehow be relevant to a terrorist investigation. But based on that theory, almost everything is fair game, and the Fourth Amendment is almost meaningless. Some in Congress, including the author of the Patriot Act, Jim Sensenbrenner, have argued that this is a clear twisting of the law and have vowed to change the law. Unfortunately, those attempts in Congress have so far failed. A series of legal challenges are winding their way through the courts with very mixed results so far. Eventually, it will almost definitely end up before the Supreme Court, where almost anything could happen. In the past few years, the court has actually shown some surprising interest in reestablishing the Fourth Amendment, but its rulings have really been a mixed bag. Back here again to discuss the surveillance state with us is Barry Eisler and Dennis Yang. Barry, of course, was with us last week as well, talking about self-publishing. Uh, while well-known today as a best-selling author in a previous life, he also worked for the CIA, so he brings a unique perspective to this discussion that we thought was worth sharing. So let's dive in and discuss the nature of the surveillance state. The NSA and the CIA insist that they need all this information to keep us safe. So, Barry, tell us, is that true? It certainly doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, It's funny, I was thinking about this just today while I was reading some articles, some uh, articles at The Intercept about uh, Canada's Canada's system of scooping up uh, information about all, um, it's not just Canadian, but international users who are downloading files, and about this um, drug enforcement agency uh, system of license plate Mm -hmm. readers, which Mm -hmm. is collecting data on millions of Americans, their movements and their vehicles, includes um, cameras that are so sensitive that they can photograph images not just of license plates but of and other vehicle information but also images of drivers and passengers and that sort of thing and it reminded me of this old 
Bazooka Joe comic that I remember from when I must have been like six years old and some guy who dropped something and he's like a pen or something and, some, and he's looking around on the ground and someone says, hey, Joe, wh what are you doing? And he says, oh, I dropped my pen over there gesturing to a place that's 50 feet away. So I'm looking for it. And they said, well, why are you looking for it over here if you dropped it over there? And he says, because the light's better over here. <laughs> right. And that's, that's, what, that's the fundamental psychological dynamic, I think, of this notion uh, articulated by former NSA chief Keith Alexander that we need to, I think it was Alexander, maybe it was Michael Hayden, probably both of them, <laughs> that we can't find the needle if we don't build the haystack. haystack. And it's yeah. sort of interesting to imagine these guys piling hay <laughs> and making this thing bigger and bigger. And they don't know if there's a needle in it. Right. They don't know if they're putting another needle in there. They don't, they're just making the haystack bigger and bigger and bigger. Why would you do that if you want to find a needle? I mean, why not build a metal detector or something like that? <laughs> they're just scooping hay on it. The mentality, the, the analogy is fascinating. And I think it's because the internet lends itself, the modern forms of moder uh, modern forms of electronic communications just lend themselves to surveillance in ways mm -hmm. that previous forms of surveillance didn't. I mean, for example, before there was even anything, say, like a telephone, um, how could you perform surveillance? You're talking probably about foot and vehicular surveillance. That's labor intensive. Right. You can't blanket an entire society with... Uh, with you know, gumshoes, right. guys in trench coats following all the individual citizens. It just won't work. You have to be choosy about who's worth following and who's not. The internet, by its very nature, allows this kind of mass surveillance. And so that's why they're doing it, because they can. And then with that is just some human nature. I think you've got people who are tasked with finding, with other aspects of human nature, people who are tasked with finding ways of hacking difficult problems, coming up with elegant solutions to difficult problems. And like, hey, how about if we did this? You know, if we do this thing with a license plate reader, we can also do that. Or if we, if, by the way, if we're, um, if we're looking for, if we're using some sort of X key source score system to find, to look into people's, um, uh, internet search behavior, we can also right. find out more about their email behavior. And it's an elegant solution. Hackers like elegant solutions. And, mm -hmm. and you've got individuals who aren't really looking at the big picture. They're just they're coming up with cool ways of solving problems. But in the aggregate, what it results in is this massive system of surveillance that's not very well optimized towards stopping the terrorists it's ostensibly aimed, at, uh, aimed against, but that is actually very well designed for suppressing dissent in the, in the domestic population and for chilling free speech once people realize, my God, there's really not a lot I can do online that isn't that the government isn't capable of monitoring yeah there is um someone pointed out this out recently i can't remember exactly where i saw it but it was this sort of really interesting thought which was you know this idea that you know groups like the nsa specifically right i mean historically they'd always been on focused on sort of you know breaking the communication tools that right the that enemies use right, right? and they were enigma these, yeah right and so you would have so yeah i mean there's obviously with with the the alan turing movie there's a lot of attention with enigma and that kind of thing and everyone feels like that that feels good right in some yeah. sense because you're like okay that's the enemy's planning to do something bad and so you're breaking the right. system that they use the difference now is that the tool that the enemies use to communicate is also the tool that we all use to communicate and right. that's the big difference whereas yeah. it's no longer just breaking the tool that the 
enemy is That's using right. to plan something. This is the tool that everyone uses to right. communicate every day and all sorts of important and private details yeah. of their lives. Yeah. Well, do they think that we are all the enemy then? Is that what? Well, <laughs> there is an argument. <laughs> that's, that's, that's part of what happens. It's just, right. I think it's the psychology of these things. And it's funny, I can almost imagine some people who don't pay as close attention to these things sort of smiling and thinking, hey, is Barry wearing his tinfoil hat? Oh, you guys are doing this podcast. Look, don't take my word for it. Uh, look yeah. at the look at some of the files that Edward Snowden leaked, in which it's revealed that um, the GCHQ, uh, Britain's equivalent of uh, the NSA, is classifying investigative journalists mm-hmm. as a comparable threat level to terrorists and right. cyber and cyber hackers. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So again, like, don't take my word for it. I mean, this <laughs> is them describing what they look at as a national security threat. They are looking right. at journalism as a national security threat. Well, it's, and the same thing too, where they, you know, they believe that they, under the terrorist act, they have the right, right to detain journalists. That's exactly right. And they passing made that, through. They right? made that argument explicitly yeah. when they held um, Glenn Greenwald's partner, David Miranda, for the full nine hours they were allowed to. I mean, right. this guy, everybody knows mm-hmm. this guy. Even the British government had to acknowledge that, okay, he doesn't have anything to do with terrorism, qua terrorism, but, <laughs> um, but he's carrying some, um, some thumb drive that we think might have. Um, yeah. in, English, British state secrets on it, and that's a form of terrorism, is it? So these things always get broadened out. Um, this is, uh, I can go on and on about this, but like, there's so much in the news. Like, we, we have time. Go, please yeah. do. <laughs> well, this, the DEA's, um, uh, the DEA, the DEA's uh, license plate yeah. um, reader system yeah. is actually being used initially primarily as a form of um, of getting more data that local agencies can use for civil a- asset forfeiture, mm-hmm. which is the way basically of stealing property from people who haven't been convicted of anything yeah. yet and uh, selling it off and using the proceeds for local police departments. So it gets used for one thing and then it gets... And, and in fact, one, one of the things that was revealed with the, the... Because the DEA stuff was revealed thanks to an ACLU right. uh, FOIA request and a lot of it was redacted, but one right. of the things that was revealed was that the primary purpose yeah. of this program was for asset forfeiture. Yes. And you're like, wait... So the it's not to yeah. stop drugs; right. it is to to steal stuff yeah, from it's people. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. So, so what were they doing? They were basically the, use well using the license plate reader to track where people go, and right. then using that to basically figure out what they can take. And the way the the asset forfeiture program works, which is you don't have to prove anything. Right. You just accuse the property, not the individual. You accuse the property of committing a crime and so you have these crazy cases the, the of being the proceeds of a crime like back that. up a second you just said the property is being accused of a crime right the, the property is accused of the crime so you actually will have cases like the huh. united states versus one hundred thousand dollars in cash <laughs> or the 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 really funny one i forget exactly what it was but it was like the united states uh, this is not the right. exact one because i don't have it in front of me but it's the united states versus like 2500 boxes of clicker balls right because that's what they've seized and they never have to prove anything because they never have to actually <laughs> file criminal charges against the people. They can just take it. Right. And then the person can then go and fight to have it back. But it's a, it's a really big process. Yeah. And like, wow. I, I mean, we just, I, this is going down another rabbit hole, but like we first came across this or I first came across it when, when the government started seizing websites, right. which seems like a, a clear First Amendment violation, mm-hmm. but they said no, you know, because we're not stopping the person from saying anything. We're just taking the website because the website 
is, wow. is, is part of the crime. And that led to a whole bunch of other things. And we'll, we'll cover that in another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so all, all these programs, RICO was originally, mm-hmm. uh, was marketed as a way just of tackling organized crime as classically mm-hmm. understood. And it's been used for, um, in investigations and criminal prosecutions far broader than just any, any, beyond things that anyone would recognize as sort yep. of classic, uh, organized crime. And, and it keeps expanding because the, the, la- the, the latest thing is the, um, the new plan to change the cybersecurity laws is actually to extend um, some of the cybersecurity laws so they're covered under RICO as well. Yeah. So that they'll be able to use, you know, racketeering wow. charges against someone for logging into yeah. to a system with somebody else's yeah. password. So, so this is something that interests me enormously uh, about the way certain policies are discussed. There are certain tells, certain signs of when people are too emotional about a topic and their brains have turned off. And one of those signs is this, they stop talking about it in terms of cost benefit. So here's a quick counter example. Like if there's a little municipality mm-hmm. and somebody says, Hey, I think we should put a four way stop sign in at that intersection on main street. Um, what do people say? Like, well, first why? And they go, well, 10 years ago, a bicyclist got, uh, ran over a pedestrian there and somebody got hurt. You're like, well, I'm, I mean, that's not insignificant. We don't want people getting hit by bicyclists. What's it going to cost? And if they're like, ah, it should only cost a hundred thousand dollars. Then regardless of where you're going to come out in this, they're just instinctively and correctly saying, well, one bike accident every 10 years versus a hundred thousand dollars. And that's, I don't, I don't know the right answer, but their framework is right, correct. Right, right. But when it comes to things like surveillance or drugs. And these things are actually very closely connected because one, because, um, um, narco, uh, narcotics trafficking is one of the excuses that we see, uh, the government trotting out for surveillance systems, which then get used for far, uh, broader purposes. I hear people saying weird things like, um, well, we can't end drug prohibition because I got this is one of the response to a blog post I wrote. Somebody said, let me tell you why we can't end drug prohibition. That's not his words. It's my words. He said, like, why we can't legalize pot. Because I used to be a construction worker and once I was up on the roof and uh, some guy came up and he was really stoned and he was a danger to all of us. And I said, you do realize that that thing happened during pro- drug prohibition when marijuana was illegal. Like it didn't, you know, the thing. We didn't, didn't stop it's the... It's very strange. Yeah. It's sort of counterintuitive. But even if it were true that... Um, that somehow the policy that was in place that wasn't stopping the thing that he was upset about could in fact, or did in fact stop that thing. Where is the discussion about the costs of, of drug prohibition, the costs in terms of border security, judicial resources, militarization of, uh, and destabilization of, uh, of neighboring countries, the growth of, um, of narco trafficking, uh, gangs that are, that are destabilizing right. these countries and yeah. actually pose a national security threat that buy and then use guns and create a new, a whole new problem for ATF, yeah. um, overpopulate, overcrowding of prisons, um, racist implementation of various laws. I mean, Chris Hayes had this thing. It was just brilliant. I thought he said, here's how you can tell that our drug laws are unjust because if they were actually enforced, about two thirds of the adult population of America would be in prison. And he's right. Like, that's it. Game right. over. End of discussion. The law is insane. If, if enforcing the law would put right. two thirds of the population behind bars, the law can't be right. So people don't talk about the costs of these things, just no. about well, how Well, because they're... it was, you know, typically structured as stop something at all cost, right? right. And, yeah. and when you say that, you're like, really? Which is a strange <laughs> thing to say about people. But um, anything. Self-pleasuring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, 
I mean, yeah. why do we have to stop that at all costs or yeah. any cost for that matter? Well, right? that's that's a whole other <laughs> other discussion. But but I mean, it's true, and it's, I mean, it's something that we certainly we had this discussion on the podcast before yeah. when we were talking about um, education and the idea that like you know people need to learn basic things like cost benefit yes. analysis early on in education because it's one of those things that is so important and almost everything that you do in life and yet seems to be something that people just don't think about and and it's Definitely true in the surveillance what space. What did you call for statistics? Did I just read this yeah. post? I must have yeah, statistics, <laughs> yeah. and I forget what the. My thing is civics. I'm like, if people could just read the yeah, constitution. Yeah, I mean that, that was it's the instruction manual. <laughs> we should always read the instruction. Well, that was the, yeah. I mean, that was the discussion that we were having. Was it, you know because yeah. people are talking about trying to learn coding, and we're saying you know yeah. economics, coding, statistics, right. journalism, civics right. could be right. you know anything, but like some of it was just these sort of basic life concepts yeah. that are important in making these kinds people, of decisions don't get, yeah you're right and and cost benefit analysis is one so, and and yeah. it becomes really clear in the surveillance space that it's not being yeah, done exactly at all what i was going to say yeah you don't you just and again it's a tell that people their fear is turned on and their brains have turned off because if, if it weren't the case when the government says in reaction to let's say uh, for example um the uh the paris attacks mm-hmm. and so you've got mm-hmm. multiple governments now saying well we need to step up electronic surveillance i don't think i heard anybody except julian sanchez say hey man has anybody even made a connection <laughs> between the use of electronic communication and those attacks i mean we don't yeah. even know if stepping up electronic surveillance would right. have had anything to do with preventing these attacks but the question is not being asked yeah. and people are not asking what well, what would it cost to do that but yeah. we by have every to measure. do something yeah. right that's, right. And and it, yeah. that's, that's part of the psychology yeah and and I'm not, in some ways, I'm not unsympathetic to the politicians who are victim yeah. victimized by it. Although I would like to see people step up and 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 have a conversation about. Uh, uh, let's talk about the psychology. Where look, I know yeah. it feels like we have to do something, but you know what? Right. We have thirty thousand people a year dying in gun deaths in America, and something right. closer to forty thousand automobile deaths on highway deaths every year. A, a half million, do- a half million tobacco related deaths every year, and somehow our society just manages to stagger along despite all that. <laughs> right. Not saying that terrorism isn't bad and that it's even worse because it's not so it's not random and blah 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 but do you really think we should spend literally trillions of dollars invading other countries droning other countries right. changing our whole way of life stifling all the, the sorts of land of the brave um home of the free kind of mythology <laughs> yeah. that we've all been reared on do you think we should do all that in order to make slightly less likely the chances of dying um to make slightly even less likely the chances of dying in a terrorist attack which currently are even less likely than dying of the intestinal flu while overseas or drowning in your bathtub or being struck by lightning or killed by uh, killed by bees. It's true. Those things are all more dangerous than terrorist attacks. And yet we spend trillions and, on terrorist attacks. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, preventing and, and one of the points that I heard someone make, and, and I can't remember who, so I'm stealing this idea, but it, it makes the point was this idea. It's like, okay, if you want to say we don't want to allow terrorists to hijack airplanes and we have to stop it at all costs, there's an easy way to do that, which is to stop all flights, yeah, right? That's right. No more planes. <laughs> you have then done it. You have stopped airplane-driven terrorism at all costs. <laughs> but the cost is obviously really high. It, but if, right. if you're doing the cost-benefit, then you say, well, there's probably somewhere in between that yes. that we should we should settle. But right. we're not having that kind of discussion. And and part of it, I think, I mean, a lot of it you started to Great get example. at it was, was that the politicians feel they have to do something right. because the voters expect them to do something. Right. So some of it is, is that, but that doesn't explain, well, I guess it could explain the the intelligence community saying they need all this stuff because they don't want to get blamed for right. the inevitable attack because there's going to be an attack exactly. no matter what. God, you'd think though, I mean, 
you know, they're also good at marketing and spin and releasing the and releasing the embarrassing news reports late Friday afternoon. <laughs> right. I mean, they know what they're Christmas, doing. Christmas Eve. Oh, exactly. That was what was that, that NSA dump? Oh my yeah, god, they did that it was, on Christmas Eve. You know, it was so brazen. It was almost I almost admired it. I'm like, damn, really, Christmas Eve. So they're so good at that stuff. You'd think that, hey, instead of instead of building the Rube Goldberg system after Rube Goldberg system and, and piling more and more hay on this and having no clue at all whether there's even a needle in there or whether you're adding needles or anything like that. How about if instead you have a conversation with, Amer- with the American people saying, look, um, we long ago as a society, we made a decision about uh, how we're going to balance safety on the one hand and freedom on the other. And we, I think we got it roughly right. And, and you could <laughs> yeah. move to North Korea if you would favor some sort of different balance. But you know, that kind of conversation. And then you'd be insulated if you were to say, look, something's always going to sneak through. It's just part of life. And we're not right. going to turn ourselves into a garrison state to slightly reduce the chances of that already extremely remote possibility. But something will sne- sneak through, but we can handle it. We can take it. Why? We're Americans. We're tougher than that. Right. Can you imagine a politician saying something like that? Yeah. No, they're always like, no, okay, well, look, we'll surveil you more. <laughs> they're like, well, let's talk about what more, what other freedoms we have to give up now. That yeah. again, every time something happens, the reflexive conversation that happens afterwards is, what freedoms do we need to give up now? Right. But is that is that what the public has been asking for? Like, has, is, is that the conversation that's been happening? Like, I feel like they, you know, a lot of times the government seems to trudge ahead assuming that that's what the public wants and they never even stop to is ask. Is it really? Well, there was, right. um, and, and this is um, sort of to plug another podcast, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Invisibilia, which is yeah, a, great, lot more popular, podcast, a lot more yeah. popular than this one, but, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they had that episode on fear, right. right? And it opened with this really sort of interesting statistic or point, which was, you know, they were, they were talking about this guy who had recorded these kids in a, some small town right. like 30, 40 years ago. I don't remember exactly. And he just, the, the study was to actually see what kids do when they were alone. So mm. he just kind of like wandered around this town and would follow kids into the woods. And he has this recording of them like making fart noises in the woods and right. things that little kids do. Right. And then he went back 30 or 40 years later and he was saying the thing that, that struck him that was really different was that, um, you know, the kids who are allowed to run free all over the town, right. you know, decades uh, before, no longer no could because yeah. everyone was afraid. Yeah. And he yeah. said, but the the level of crime and violence in that town had gone down and, yeah. glo- and, and nationally have gone down. And yet he went and he found like the kid who's in the, the tape that he was, you know, making the fart noises yeah. who now has kids yeah. and now is an adult. And he said, would you let your yeah. kids today go run and yeah. run around in that same park? And he's like, no way. Yeah. Even though they know that that so there's this this sort of right. fear out there, but is that is that something that is just sort of a cultural thing of the time? Is it driven by cable news? Is it driven <laughs> by the internet? Is it what what what's driving that? My sense is that it's all those things and some others too. That because we can make things safer, right. we feel like we have to make things safer, and mm. even more than that, that it's. Um, that it's immoral and even literally criminal not to make them safer. So here's a quick example. When I was right. a kid, my parents, we had a station wagon. Yep. There were three of us, my sister, brother, and I. And uh, and they used to just throw the three of us in the back of the station wagon like yeah. logs. You know, yeah. We were rolling around back there as we go someplace. If you did that today, you would be breaking the law. You'd probably, you'd, you'd be in prison and you'd probably get burned at the stake on the internet. Um, <laughs> so you can't do that sort of thing anymore. And bicycle helmets, right. child seats. Uh, I... 
I, I probably shouldn't cop to this because some people will think like, oh my God, that's you're a horrible person. I don't wear a bike helmet. I like to bike and I hate bike helmets. So I don't, I don't wear one. I mean, I, but even for something yeah. like, you know, biking over to the supermarket, it's two miles or something like right. that to pick something up. But I look around, everybody's got a bike helmet on. And, uh, and I know there are probably people who look at me and right. feel like, you know, you're a fool, you're insane. And look, maybe so. But the point is, it wasn't that long ago where it was in no way unremarkable. Yeah. I never to, wear a, I, I never got a bike helmet until I was in college, I yeah. think. And I used right. to bike everywhere. Yeah. So I think, why is that? Well, there are a number of things. One is because bike helmets exist now. Maybe there's like polycarbonate bike helmet technology that didn't <laughs> exist 40 years ago. So that could be one thing. And then industries grow up around these things because if you're in the bike helmet industry mm-hmm. and you can raise consciousness. Right. And indeed, if you can make, if you can make people feel ashamed one way or the other not to even you know, even just to go out for a walk they better wear a bike helmet because why not you know once there was this guy who was walking <laughs> and, and, and a log fell on a tree branch fell on his head so if you can do all that there's a lot of money to be made in right. peddling fear now I'm, I'm being half facetious about the bike helmet industry but the dynamic i'm describing is um is true except about you know, ten thousand times uh, more powerful in the national security yeah, right the that homeland makes, security and, sense, oh, god right? there's so much money this is i, I mentioned uh before we started recording, I'm listening to James Risen's book, Pay Any Price in the Car Right Now. And he's talking about this. And it's, I mean, if it, if it weren't so tragic, it would be hilariously funny because you've just built this multi-trillion dollar industry that would go away overnight if people weren't afraid. Yeah. People are so motivated to keep the population in a panic, not thinking and terrified Absolutely. because they get so much money out of this. And Smedley Butler wrote his book in, I don't know, 1920-something, War is a Racket. Yeah. I mean, these things are just... They're true. And that's another thing I would teach. We go back to the sorts of things I teach in high school. Like, what are the, what are the hidden benefits? What are the hidden right. incentives? Like when you go to a store and you're trying to, you're trying to suit jacket and the salesman says, Hey, you look great in that jacket. But if you know the salesman's working on commission, look, you might look good in the jacket. As a matter of logic, it's not, it's not logically true that you don't look in the jacket because good in the jacket because he's working on commission, but you know, to discount right. the value of what he's saying because he has an interest in it and nobody looks at, at yeah. the national well, security there, there was, complex. That I way. mean, this incredible thing, I mean, nobody, we, it's too we, strong statement. but I mean, and we wrote about this like five or six years ago when, when, People were first talking about cyber war, uh, you know, before it was cybersecurity. Right. They at least toned it down a little bit. But originally it was like cyber war, cyber war, cyber war, and it was all over the press and all this stuff. And the person who kept making this pitch for cyber war was this guy named Mike McConnell, who was a former yeah, NSA yeah, director. Yeah, yeah. And, and now and with Booz Hamilton. Well, yeah. see, that oh, was sorry. the thing. He was yeah. Booz Hamilton at Hamilton, the time. Yeah. He was the chairman of Booz Allen, but he was never introduced that way. He would go on TV and he would be in the paper Booz Allen, I'm sorry, that's right. Booz Allen. And and they would always say, former NSA director, Michael McConnell. And they wouldn't mention the fact that he profits from this stuff. Like and and you know, they it was at the same time that that Booz Allen had just gotten uh, like an $800 million contract for cybersecurity, and he's going out pitching cyber war, we're all gonna be attacked, we're all gonna die. It's like whether or not there may be some truth to risks about cybersecurity, he's not an impartial player. Right, right. And nobody was discussing yeah. that. And so you, they just take that element out of the discussion and that leads to this rise of fear. And it's, it's a very cynical thing to point out, but it's, but there is some truth to of it. Of course. Otherwise, why wouldn't they disclose it? It seems like just based on any normal journalistic practices yeah. or even just common sense, you'd say, look, this guy's affiliated with David Barstow in the New York times a few years ago, did a whole expose on this. All the cable news networks have these former military people who are now associated with companies <laughs> that sell all kinds of military security intelligence gear right. and they're on television getting the fear all hopped up. So look, maybe we should be hopped up on fear, <laughs> but to make an informed decision about just how hopped up 
should I be? I need to know, oh, if I get really hopped up with the rest of the country and then this guy's going to make a million dollars, I need to know that to be able to make an informed decision. And, uh, and the networks are concealing. I know Barstow did a great job of, um, of yeah. bringing that to light. So, so I have to ask, how did you survive at the CIA? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually get asked that question um, fairly often. And the truth is, um, I can't say I'm particularly proud of it, but uh, when I was at the CIA, I was well-educated. I had a lot of information, mm -hmm. but I was one of those people who would have benefited from all the courses we're talking about, you know, <laughs> civics, logic, statistics, uh, cost-benefit analysis, things like that. So I, was, I would describe myself at that time as patriotic in the ordinary uh, way and in the kind of reflexive, instinctive way that most people feel their patriotism. And, uh, and I don't think that's actually a particularly useful patriotism. I think it was more sort of nationalism. And uh, it was only later, maybe 10 years ago-ish, that, that I was able to turn all that information into something that I like to tell myself is, is a little wiser than just having the information, <laughs> a little less reflexive. And that was by exposure to the blogosphere. That really mm -hmm. changed so much of my worldview. Uh, the blogosphere radicalized me, which is uh, probably why I'm also such a big proponent of self-publishing and that sort of thing. <laughs> because um, when... You know, it's funny, you might think like the, the things I used to read, like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and foreign affairs and foreign policy. And you were like, wow, that guy's really re well read. And, you know, in one sense, yes, I was getting a lot of information, but it was all coming from the same incestuous group of uh, elite establishment players who held a common worldview, who had far more in common than, uh, than they had uh, apart. It was only when I, when I encountered a, a really, um, diverse set of voices in the blogosphere questioning all the bullshit that the establishment was peddling that I started thinking, you know, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, and started becoming a much more critical consumer of media. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I, you know, I got by there pretty easily because I, I knew a lot of stuff and I didn't think very deeply. So. <laughs> wow. That's an interesting <laughs> comment about the CIA. So, uh, one final question and then I think we'll, we'll be done with this, but, um, I mean, what, what do you think happens now? Right. I mean, so there's, you know, there've been all this Snowden revelations and there's the lawsuits and the attempts in Congress to, to do stuff. And, and there's, you know, one group over here that's very angry. And there's one group over here that says fear, fear, fear. You know, wh and what do you think happens next? Oh God. I mean, I try, I, I really want to be hopeful. Um, I think what Snowden has done for America and the world is invaluable because no matter how it turns out, He's given privacy and freedom, which uh, Jacob Applebaum rightly says is those are almost synonyms. He's given it a fighting chance. And um, we now at least have the information we need, at least a lot of the information we need to make more informed decisions uh, about the costs and benefits of security versus surveillance, for example. So for that, um, I think... Everyone, every American, I think everyone in the world who values freedom, privacy, democracy, owes um, Edward Snowden a huge debt of gratitude. What we're going to be able to do with the gift he's given us, I wish I could be more hopeful than I am. But um, people, people have a tendency not to pay attention for as long as they should or to get distracted by something like another terror attack. Um, 
not to ask questions like the one Julian Sanchez asked. Was like, does anybody even know what the Paris attacks had anything to do with? Like, like these guys were roommates. They could have talked about the. Are you saying we should install monitors in their bathroom? I mean, if so, then please come out and say or so. In their ears, right, exactly. Right, like brain implants. I mean, you know, what what are you saying yeah. would have stopped this? particular attack. So, you know, the next attack happens, fear gets hopped up again, people stop paying attention. Uh, Obama is um, a master of giving pretty speeches with great rhetoric that makes, I mean, if I think like if you're any kind of, say, liberal, you'll listen to those speeches and you'll be like, yeah, he's my guy. He really gets it. And, uh, and that's just, those are just speeches, just pretty words. And then again and again, what he, what he actually implements yeah. is the kind of thing that, um, that has Dick Cheney literally smiling as he goes on the, on the new show saying, I told you, I told you, and Obama's doing it too. Um, and I think too many people get distracted by the pretty things that, uh, the Nobel Peace Laureate says, and they don't pay attention to like They go for the head fake and they don't see what's really going on with the hands and the hips. It's just a widespread tendency. Um, I don't know if you ask me when I'm feeling optimistic and I'll be a little more optimistic. And right now, for some reason, I just feel like, God, people just don't really get, um, how, uh, Frank church in 1975, um, during the church and Pike commission Mm -hmm. hearings, there's this great quote where he says, I don't know it verbatim, but basically this is, I mean, this technology is 40 years old. And he says, my God, um, we have to be so careful about empowering the NSA because what we're talking about here is the machinery of total surveillance and oppression. And if this machinery were ever turned inward on the American people, we would have tyranny and totalitarianism that we could never reverse. I believe all that. And he's talking about stuff that's 40 years ago that would bore the NSA today. <laughs> so, um, so when I look at all that and I feel like people, people are so afraid of this thing that could happen, that's the chances of which are less than drowning in your own bathtub. And yet they're not afraid of something that has so much historical precedent, which is an, abroad, but also at home with programs like COINTELPRO and the FBI abuses mm-hmm. of the sixties and seventies. Um, these things have actually happened and yet people are so sanguine and they think like, well, it couldn't happen again. These are good people with good hearts. What a CIA uh, director, William Colby, what did he say? Trust us. We're all honorable men. And too many Americans are like, well, yeah, I guess. Instead of saying, look what happens when you give people this, the government this much power, it never ends well. Yeah. It won't end well this time. So I'm sorry. You caught me in a pessimistic <laughs> Ask me next time. All right. Well, then that's, that's a good note. We'll have to have you back again uh, when you're more optimistic. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll have uh, another discussion on another thing. But thanks very much for joining us and for a wonderful conversation. And uh, Same to you. Thanks for having me. Sure. And we'll be back next week. So let's take a leaf out of their hands and take a leak every opportunity we can. If you love your country, your country should love you too. But how can you trust someone who doesn't trust you? I'm watching you, watching me, we're a drama scene But the chemistry's not there, there's no bonomy Mr. O'Bonomy, stay the words of harmony Cause he's got...